everyone, to Season 7 of Be Formed, Week 12. This week we have Father James Garaccio, who is the parochial vicar at St. Mary's Parish in Plainfield, Illinois. He's going to be talking to us today about the connection between the Eucharist and the sacrament of holy matrimony. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Let's listen to Father James. Hey guys, Father James here from St. Mary Immaculate Parish in Plainfield. Happy to be with you and to talk to you today about the relationship between the Eucharist and holy matrimony. JP2 said that it is the sacrament of the bridegroom and the bride. Why? Why would the Eucharist be nuptial or marital? Well, let's just start at the beginning. Remember that Eve came from the side of Adam, as we read in Genesis 2.21. So the Lord God cast a deep sleep on the man, and while he was asleep, he took out one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. The Lord God then built the rib that he had taken from the man into a woman. When he brought her to the man, the man said, This one at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of man this one has been taken. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, and the two of them become one body. So what this passage shows us is that marriage is built into our human nature. In fact, marriage is the primary image that God uses throughout all of Scripture in order to describe our relationship with him or his relationship with us. With Adam and Eve in the beginning, with the covenants throughout, with the prophets constantly hearkening back to marital imagery, the Song of Songs in the middle of the Bible, Jesus himself calling himself the bridegroom and all of his parables, John the Baptist referring to Jesus as the bridegroom, and then all the way at the end, of course, in the book of Revelation, that we are called to the wedding feast of the Lamb. So as we can see, the primary image that God likes to use in Scripture for describing his relationship with us is nuptial, is marital. So it only makes sense that the sacrament of sacraments would also be nuptial. Um, But why would God do this? Why would he use this image specifically? Well, uh, because for one thing, it is marriage is the fullest and the clearest and the most universal, incarnational, human image of love. And that shouldn't surprise us because God is not afraid to speak our language, to allow him his revelation of himself to be enfleshed in human terms. That's what the incarnation is, of course. Um, But it only makes sense that he's furthermore going to talk about himself in other human languages, such as marriage or nuptial imagery. And it also makes further sense because marriage is the fundamental building block for humanity, for society. And so, as we can see, the early church all the way until today easily saw this connection between Adam and Eve and Jesus and us. Because if Jesus is the bridegroom, then that means that he must have a bride. And if Jesus is the new Adam, then that would make us the new Eve. John 19 reads, But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one soldier thrust his lance into his side, and immediately blood and water flowed out. What we see in this passage from John 19 is a hearkening back to what we just read from Genesis 2. Namely, that from the side of Adam came Eve. And so the church fathers very quickly and readily saw that in this passage from the Gospel of John, from the side of the new Adam comes the new Eve. But you might think, well, 
I thought Mary was the new Eve. And you're right. You're not wrong. Uh, because Mary herself is the perfect icon, the perfect image of the church, of what it means to be Christian, of what it means to carry Jesus within oneself and bear Jesus to the world. And so at this point, let's now connect all the dots and bring this specifically to the Eucharist. Notice that it was blood and water that flowed out in order to represent the birth of the church, the new Eve flowing from the side of the new Adam. Well, how do we become Christians? How do we become united with Jesus? First and foremost, through the waters of baptism, of course. And then that relationship that is started at baptism is then brought to its consummation, its summit in the Eucharist, the blood of Jesus, which of course also flowed from the side of Jesus on the cross. Now, don't just take my word for it. Just listen to this Christian who wrote the same thing 1,600 years ago. There flowed from his side water and blood. Beloved, do not pass over this mystery without thought. It has yet another hidden meaning, which I will explain to you. I said that water and blood symbolize baptism and the Holy Eucharist. From these two sacraments, the church is born. From baptism, the cleansing water that gives rebirth and renewal through the Holy Spirit, and from the Holy Eucharist. Since the symbols of baptism and the Eucharist flowed from his side, it was from his side that Christ fashioned the church as he had fashioned Eve from the side of Adam. Moses gives a hint of this when he tells the story of the first man and makes him exclaim, bone of my bones and flesh from my flesh. As God then took a rib from Adam's side to fashion a woman, so Christ has given us blood and water from his side to fashion the church. God took the rib when Adam was in a deep sleep, and in the same way, Christ gave us the blood and the water after his own death. Do you understand, then, how Christ has united his bride to himself, and what food he gives us all to eat? By one and the same food, we are both brought into being and nourished. Beautiful explanation. So we become Jesus's bride when we are washed in the water and the blood that flowed from his side, our baptism. And when we partake in the Eucharist, we return back to our origins. We return back to our wedding day, so to speak. We return back to this initial relationship in the consummation of that relationship in the Eucharist, becoming one flesh with our bridegroom. And here's where I want to make that connection all the more clear, that it's a nuptial act. Because, of course, well, what happens in the sacrament of marriage? Two persons make a gift of themselves to the other such that they are able to become one flesh. The bridegroom and the bride each say to each other on their wedding day, yes, I give you all of myself. I give you my heart. I give you my mind. I give you my soul. I give you my past. I give you my present. I give you my future. I hold nothing back. This is what the wedding vows, in a sense, say. They say, I give you all of myself fully, freely, faithfully, fruitfully, and as long as we are both still living, forever. In other words, they make a complete and total gift of themselves on their wedding day, and in that way, enter into a new state of being. They are no longer two, but one. That is what a marital covenant does. It changes you. You make a gift of yourself, and now there is a new reality, a new existence, a new way of being. 
And of course, what did Jesus do for us on the cross? He said with his whole heart and mind and soul and body, I give you all of myself, freely, fully, faithfully, fruitfully, and even forever. So Jesus has already made a perfect gift of himself to each and every one of us on the cross. And we receive that in our baptism. And then the Eucharist is our opportunity to likewise do the same, to reciprocate, such that when we're receiving Jesus in the Eucharist, not only is it him representing what we received at our baptism, namely Jesus dying for us, for our washing, for our cleansing, to unite us to himself and to a new way of existence, but then every time we receive the Eucharist, that same reality is made present. He gives himself totally to us just as a bridegroom to his bride. And so we are to make that response. We are to say, I do, not only at our baptism, but every day of our lives. And that is renewed each and every Sunday and each and every time we come to Mass. But of course, that's not where the story ends because in married life, man and woman can literally become one flesh. They can incarnate in their bodies that marital promises. I give you all of myself holding nothing back. And so in an analogous way, just as in baptismal life, we in Christ enter into a one flesh union, a one flesh covenant, just as on a wedding day, a husband and a wife are made one, so too we can incarnate in our bodies our baptismal union with Jesus in communion, just as a bride and a groom can incarnate in their bodies their wedding vows through the marital act. So in communion, we are renewing those promises. In communion, we are becoming one flesh with the bridegroom. Thus, we can understand why JP2 and Cardinal Burke and Church Fathers and all Christians throughout history have seen the Eucharist as a nuptial act. And interestingly enough, we can see that an implication from this reality is why the Eucharist is reserved to those who have been baptized, because you cannot represent what is not yet already there. You cannot renew these promises, renew this relationship that has not yet been established. And now we can also see why the Eucharist is such a reverent and an intimate gift, which images the ideal of marriage to us. For in the Eucharist, we encounter our bridegroom. And how else does Jesus give himself to us but perfectly? He gives himself to us in humility, in gentleness, without imposing himself upon us, but rather in pouring himself out, out of love for us, in a love that is nothing less than the self-gift of the cross, free, full, faithful, fruitful. And because we can... In encounter the cross represented for us at every Mass forever. Thus, the Church prays on the solemnity of the Sacred Heart, for raised up high on the cross, he gave himself up for us with a wonderful love, and poured out blood and water from his pierced side, the wellspring of the Church's sacraments, so that one over to the open heart of the Savior all might draw water joyfully from the springs of salvation. From the new Adam's side, comes the sacraments, comes the new Eve, those things that make us his bride. 
and in the sacraments, most obviously shown in the Eucharistic miracles like uh, Lanciano, Jesus actually gives us nothing less than his very heart. Hence, the Eucharist alongside the cross is the image. It is the ideal that marriages are constantly invited to imitate. Each and every Sunday, when you look at the Eucharist, it is to remind you of what marital self-gift, marital living, is meant to look like as we gaze upon him who freely gives himself to us once again. And so uh, just an invitation is uh, when you're at Mass and when we're encountering the Eucharist, we can uh, use this as an opportunity to grow in marital relationships, grow in our understanding of, of marriage. And so we can ask ourselves, do I, like Jesus, humbly, gently, and without imposing myself, make a gift of myself each and every day to my spouse, just as Jesus does each and every day in the Eucharist at the Mass. Or we can ask ourselves, do I, like Jesus in the tabernacle, or Jesus in Eucharistic adoration, make myself available to my spouse so that he or she can come to me in need, find solace and comfort, and know that I'm just excited to be with him or her. That's what Jesus shows us when he's present in every tabernacle, in every Catholic church throughout the entire world. He's excited just to be with us. Or when we look at the Eucharist, we can ask ourselves, do I, like Jesus in the Eucharist, say with my actions and my words, this is my body given up for you. The entire Christian life bears the mark of the spousal love of Christ and the church, as St. John Paul II says. And we can see this most chiefly in the Eucharist. Now, as our documents for today also point out, we can furthermore learn about how to approach the Eucharist from marriage as well. It's a beautiful thing that God uses the image of marriage in order to describe his relationship with us and to convey just how deep and profound his love for us truly is. So, for example, we read in Isaiah 62, For as a young man marries a virgin, your builder shall marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices in his bride, so shall your God rejoice in you. Now, at the same time, uh, and I didn't realize this when I chose this topic, but of course, <laughs> here we are. Um, interestingly enough, just as much as God speaks of his love for us in terms of marriage, he also speaks of that which separates that love or breaks that love or hurts that relationship, namely our sins, in terms of marriage, in terms of marital imagery. And so we also read in Jeremiah 3.20, But like a woman faithless to her lover, thus have you been faithless to me, house of Israel. And for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory of his Father with the holy angels. And finally, in James, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Very strong words. But notice that the words that God, through his prophets and through uh, his scriptural authors, use, it's marital terminology. He uses the term adultery to describe our sin, which is really interesting. But it makes perfect sense because if God desires to be married with us, so to speak, 
then turning away from him after our baptism, after our initial covenant with him, and committing serious sin, well, it would only make sense that it would be properly understood as spiritual adultery. And those aren't my words, but they're scriptures. But this image, I think, helps us to understand sin a lot better. When we commit serious sin, or mortal sin, we're not just breaking some external law, uh, but really we're handing over our hearts, our bodies, our souls uh, to this or that thing instead of to the one to whom those things belong, the one to whom we promised all of ourselves in our baptism and at every Eucharist. We're becoming intimately acquainted with something other than God when we commit serious sin in such a way that we're replacing God with another thing. Hence, uh, mortal sin is analogous to committing adultery. And the reason why I point this out is because it helps us to understand why Jesus's church teaches us that to receive communion while in a state of mortal sin in itself is a serious sin. As we read, according to the church's command, after having attained the age of discretion, each of the faithful is bound by an obligation faithfully to confess serious sins at least once a year. Anyone who is aware of having committed a mortal sin must not receive Holy Communion, even if he experiences deep contrition, without having first received sacramental absolution, unless he has a grave reason for receiving communion and there is no possibility of going to confession. So the only exception is if you're in danger of death and you're on your deathbed and you have no other way to receive sacramental absolution before receiving communion. That's the only exception. Otherwise, we ought to go to confession if we've committed serious sin before receiving communion. And we might think that <laughs> that's a really hard teaching. And doesn't Jesus want to bring us to himself, especially give himself to us, to the Eucharist is meant to be healing to us? Using marital terms, I think we can understand it uh, like this. God forbid if you discovered that your spouse uh, broke their vows and committed the grave sin of adultery. Well, what would you hope and expect from your spouse in that situation? And they know that you know. Well, you would hope that they would admit their sin, that they would apologize and express sincere sorrow and repentance for their sin, and that they would promise to do whatever is in their power to never do so again. And so, given that, um, Given that reality of what I think are reasonable expectations, how would you then feel if your spouse was just like, yeah, yeah, you know, like, I didn't really mean it, um, and then tried to convince you to have marital relations that very same night without ever apologizing, without ever admitting it, without ever promising and saying that, yeah, no, like, I'm going to go out of my way to do my best to avoid that in the future. We'd be rightly pretty upset and indeed um, insulted. It would be very painful to have that kind of reaction because it goes against our dignity. It says that you're not worthy of uh, be being taken seriously, of receiving a sincere apology, and of recognizing that these are vows that never should have been broken and trust needs to be restored. Can I suggest that this is perhaps how we treat God when we don't go out of our way to confess our sins, to ask for his forgiveness, and to promise to do whatever we can to amend our lives in the sacrament of confession. It's the sin of presumption. 
It's presuming on God's mercy. Um, and it's not taking responsibility for our sins or for sincerely repenting. Repenting requires acknowledging our sins, confessing them, humbling ourselves before the Lord so that he can exalt us, as we heard recently in a Sunday gospel. But again, um, I think it's important that we think that this is my teaching, but it's the Bible's teaching. It's St. Paul's teaching. It's what the church fathers and, and what tradition has always taught. As we read in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was handed over, took bread, and after he had given thanks, broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So obviously St. Paul here is talking about the Eucharist. He's talking about the Last Supper. And so he continues, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily will have to answer for the body and blood of the Lord. A person should examine himself, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are ill and infirm, and a considerable number are dying. <laughs> it's amazing that St. Paul is literally saying that some people in the Corinthian community are sick and dying because they're eating and drinking the Eucharist unworthily, without first discerning the body and blood. St. John Chrysostom comments on this passage in this way. But why does he eat and drink judgment on himself? Not discerning the body. That is, not searching, not bearing in mind, as he ought, the greatness of the things set before him. Not estimating the weight of the gift. For if you should come to know accurately who it is who lies before you, and who he is who is giving himself, and to whom, you would need no other argument. But this is enough for you, to use all vigilance. Otherwise, you would be altogether lost. In other words, he's simply saying, this is Jesus. He's given himself perfectly to us. And so then who are we to presume on his love, presume on his mercy, and just say like, yes, I deserve this, as it were, without first taking account of our sins and apologizing, receiving his forgiveness, which we know he desires to give us. That's why he gave us confession. And then to be able to receive our Lord with a clear conscience. And to take another modern example, we can look to St. John Paul II, who wrote, This call by the Apostle, speaking about this passage from 1 Corinthians 11, indicates at least indirectly the close link between the Eucharist and penance. Indeed, if the first word of Christ's teaching, the first phrase of the gospel, good news, was repent and believe in the gospel, the sacrament of the passion, cross, and resurrection seems to strengthen and consolidate in an altogether special way this call in our souls. The Eucharist and penance thus become, in a sense, two closely connected dimensions of authentic life in accordance with the spirit of the gospel, of truly Christian life. The Christ who calls us to the Eucharistic banquet is always the same Christ who exhorts us to penance and repeats his repent. Without beating around the bush, the specific example, because we're talking about marriage in the Eucharist uh, from our writings, of course, is for those who are civilly divorced and remarried, but outside of the church, and how their situation interacts with the Eucharist and this uh, constant church teaching. 
Now, um, what's important to point out is that uh, regardless of whichever mortal sin we're talking about, whether it's oppressing the poor or having sex with somebody who you're not rightfully married to inside of the church, um, we need to be in fundamental communion with God before we enter into sacramental communion with God. And now it's very important to make clear uh, that those who are civilly divorced and remarried are not, therefore, somehow secondary citizens or second citizens. And um, it's actually true that they can receive communion uh, under certain circumstances in accordance with the same stipulations that uh, all the members of the Bride of Christ um, can Namely, that so long as we've confessed all of our sins, mortal sins, and have the firm intention of avoiding those sins in the future, um, then we can receive communion. The issue with those who are divorced and civilly remarried outside of the church is that marriage presumes the marital act. Uh, That's what makes marriage unique, that the two can become one flesh. And that's also why it's between one man and one woman, because only they can truly become one flesh. And as a result of that one flesh union, literally have a one flesh enfleshment of their union, namely in children. And so while a couple who is divorced and civilly remarried can for legitimate reasons, um, such as for caring for their children, uh, because they're or because they're actively pursuing annulments and preparing to get married inside of the church to regulate their marital situation, those who are divorced and civilly remarried can receive communion if they're living as brother and sister and um, and go to confession for any time in which they've fallen into what would be considered fornication or adultery. But of course, They also have to be careful that they're not causing scandal to other people who might know that they're not married in the church. Of course, we're not to judge the state of other people's souls, uh, but the reality is is that marriage is a public and not just a private reality. And so it therefore could leave some to believe that the church has changed her teachings in regards to the Eucharist. And in my own personal experience, um, just to speak honestly, Uh, having these conversations is extremely difficult and not fun. Um, Definitely not what I want to do. But I have these conversations because it's not my teaching. It's Jesus's church's teaching. But what I will say is that many times these hard conversations have been the impetus to lead couples to reconcile with the church, to pursue an annulment because that's difficult um, because it feels like digging up things from the past. But a lot of times there's misunderstandings about annulments and really how easy it is and that they don't have to um, directly communicate with their former civil, civil spouse or things like that in order to do it. Annulments can sometimes be as quick as a few weeks or less than a year, depending on the situation and the speed with which you fill out and turn in the paperwork. Regardless, these conversations have led couples to to eventually be free from that shadow that had been plaguing them and their relationship with the Lord and their relationship with his church for so long. These are difficult things, and they're meant to uh, be followed with direct pastoral accompaniment uh, with priests. If you're in this situation or you know somebody in this situation, encourage them to talk to their priest and just have an honest conversation such that they can find the freedom and the peace and the fullness of communion with our Lord that all of us desire and that he desires for us. 
And so finally, given that the Eucharist is the consummation of our earthly union with God, and that it's Jesus himself who is giving himself, all of himself, perfectly to us, it's a pretty straightforward conclusion to understand that in the Eucharist, Jesus helps marriages to keep their priorities straight, to do what is right, to have their relationship be first and foremost in service of God and neighbor, um, and to love as Christ loves us. Hence, the Eucharist alongside the cross is the image. It is the ideal that marriages are constantly invited to imitate. It is the sacrament of the bridegroom and the bride. So that's what I've got for you guys today. I hope it was helpful. And may Almighty God bless you in your pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the way and the truth and the life. Amen. Thank you, Father James, for that wonderful explanation of the Eucharist and holy matrimony. Let's look at our Lectio Divina this week. It's from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 to 33. This is sometimes read at weddings, and you know it's also sometimes just avoided at all costs. It's that reading where it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And how did Christ love the church? Like that. But prior to that, it says, women, be subordinate to your husbands. But what, what St. Paul is saying here is, if husbands are supposed to love like this, both of you are called to lay down your lives for one another. So I'd encourage you to read that, pray with it, maybe do some journaling this week. Our large, last large group will be December 13th, the Memorial of St. Lucy, 6 p.m. Holy Hour, followed by refreshments uh, here at St. Isaac Jogues. The church part will be live-streamed. The uh, part in the parish center will not be. Next week, I'll have our, our final video. It'll be on the Eucharist and eschatology, talking about like the, the end times. Uh, again, Season 8 registration will begin January 2nd. It runs from February 14th, Ash Wednesday, to May 13th. And it's going to be on the Eucharist Part 2. And we're getting really excited about continuing to dive into this uh, topic. I've had so many people tell me, I've been Catholic my whole life. I've gone to Catholic schools, and I'm learning something every week. That, that's our goal. As we learn as adults, our faith tends to go deeper. So please invite your friends and family to join Season 8 to be formed. And if you're feeling that nudge to be a small group facilitator, maybe join with one of your friends, and the two of you can facilitate together. We're going to need more leaders as Beform continues to grow. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for all the gifts you give us. We thank you for the gift of the sacrament of the Eucharist and the sacrament of holy matrimony. Bless all married couples and fill them with your grace. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you and to you and to all your families. Buen Camino. Thank you.